last week. Today, we're going to just finish out the chapter, verses 24 through 28, with the reading of God's word. If you would stand together, Matthew 16, 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Please be seated. Well, solely by the grace of God, we have, from the beginning of our church, we have been committed to the scriptures, committed to the word of God as our, not just our stated authority, but the functional authority for for our life and ministry here at Cornerstone. It is our firm conviction that the Bible is important. That the Bible is not ideas of man, but these are the very words of God. Holy men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God used these men to breathe out his truth to us, and they're contained in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And because we believe that the Bible is the word of God, the theology that comes from the scriptures, we believe is important. The truths, the doctrines that come from the word of God are precious. They are our our treasure. They are a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, a way for us to know God, to know what he has done for us, and for us to know what we are to do in light of his grace. We did not start this philosophy. It did not begin with Cornerstone Bible Church. This idea of the importance, the centrality of theology, of scripture in the church began with the first church of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. In Acts 2.42, there is the Dr. Luke's description of the early church, what they valued, what they considered precious, what they were devoted to, And the first description is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, Didache in the Greek, which is doctrine, 
That is why in the King James Version and the New King James Version, the word doctrine is used. The first believers in the New Testament church, they were devoted, and they were continually devoted to the doctrine that the apostles gave that was found nowhere else, was not found in the synagogue, was not found in the cultic temples in Rome or, or other places, was only found in the church. And what was that doctrine? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were devoted to Christ and the message of Christ. So we find that doctrine from the beginning was the first commitment of Christians. But we also find that it was not their last commitment. Yes, Christianity is all about faith. It is all about believing. Yes, doctrine, theology, the truth of God's word is is foundational, it's fundamental, it is essential, it's crucial, it is the message that saves us. It is, it is important, but it's not everything. It doesn't end with just faith in the gospel. The Bible is clear. Our faith in the gospel must be accompanied with living and obeying and following the one who gave us that gospel message. It's both and. It is not either or. It is not balancing the two. It is not 50% doctrine and then 50% obedience. Whereas, oh, wow, I'm imbalanced. I've got 70% doctrine, 30% living, I need to balance my Christian life. No, it is 100% gospel and 100% obedience. It is both and, it is to be embraced together. We find this in the early church as well. After devoting themselves to the apostolic doctrine, Furthermore, Dr. Luke describes how they they devoted themselves to the fellowship, meaning they were committed to the church. They're committed to the mission of the church, the ministry of the church, the people of the church, the activities of the church. Their lives no longer revolved around their desires, their affairs, their interests. Their lives now revolved around the Christian church. Furthermore, they were devoted to breaking of bread. They prioritized gathering together and remembering the cross together. They prioritized it. They, They made their schedules around this important gathering. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to generous giving to the church and also generous giving to people who were in need in the church and they committed, they were committed to fervent evangelism and how do we know that? It's not stated there but it says in verse 47 that God added daily, every day people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God added daily those who were being saved. 
And we know from scriptures that evangelism happens through the church. It's not through angelic visitations. It's not through being zapped by the Holy Spirit in your dream. It doesn't happen through just some spiritual ways apart from human instruments. No, God saves people by Christians in the church proclaiming the gospel to them. And so the fact that people were saved means that this church, they were all about sharing their faith, sharing the the gospel doctrine to any who would hear. So we find that that perfect picture, the holistic picture of Christianity from the early church, 100% gospel, 100% gospel life. Well, that brings us to Matthew 16 because we see it again here. Last week, we studied the passage where our Lord discloses the fundamental reason why he came to the earth. Right? He's telling them after two and a half years of ministry, he's, cu- he's closing his ministry down. He's here for three years. Two and a half years have passed. His public ministry is pretty much shut down. I mean, he was, he was growing in mass. Crowds of people were following him. He's turning away from them, and he shifts his focus and attention to the 12 because he knows the end is near. And now he discloses the foundational reason, the ultimate aim for which he was incarnate on the earth. And he came not to give people bread. He wasn't here to, to uh, feed people fish, Right? healing and miracles are great, but that's not the ultimate reason for his arrival. It's not for just preaching and teaching. He says, I have come to suffer and die. He's saying, John the Baptist, when he first saw me, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was right. It was a faithful, it was the last prophet, the line of Old Testament prophets. He was right. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And how am I going to take away, atone for the sins of the whole world? It is as a lamb. A lamb is slaughtered. A lamb is killed. Blood must be shed for the atoning of sin. And I am that Lamb of God and I will suffer and die. I will be killed I will give my life as a sacrifice, as your substitute, so that men might be saved. Now, this was a a surprising revelation for, for Peter and for the apostles. Their hearts didn't leap with joy. It sunk with despair. Um, they were following him like the mighty men followed David. They were following him like men follow William Wallace, right? Like men follow Napoleon. Men follow our former governor, right? They were following him for victory, for power, for glory, for honor. The Roman government was oppressive, overthrow this this carnal, secular authority and establish the Vedic reign, and that's what they were seeking. And yet when they heard of Jesus suffering and dying, 
It didn't uh, fit in their paradigm. For them, it was a paradigm of theology of glory. Right? God is glorious. God is majestic. So the way we honor God is to be successful, is to be powerful, is to be in control, is to be moral. And yet Jesus revealed the heart of God, the plan of God, and God's plan is to reveal himself to the cross through weakness, through brokenness, through suffering, and through death. And so for Peter, he couldn't, he couldn't put two and two together. And, and, and yet it's, I mean, it's all over the Old Testament. This, the plan of God for the Messiah, for the anointed one, this son of God that who will come, who will fulfill all three offices in perfect measure, where he'll be anointed of God and he'll have, Holy, have the Holy Spirit without end, was described by Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Uh, is, it, is Isaiah 53 on there? Isaiah 53, verse 2. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Here is Isaiah, and God unveils gives specific descriptions of this Messiah. And Isaiah, I, I gotta wonder, as he was saying it, he was perplexed. He was despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then verse 10 is the, is the thunder. It was the will of the Lord Yahweh to crush him, to put him to grief. Well, I am sure Peter had read Isaiah 53. I am almost certain of that, but he completely missed it. And you know, I don't blame him because I miss this every day. I lose sight of this every day. I lose sight of the manner in which Christ came to earth and the manner in which Christ died. And I lose sight of how I am to live in light of the cross. For me, too often, Christianity is about what I accomplish for God through my strength. Christianity is what I do for my family because of my discipline and my wisdom. Christianity for me is how I am so much better, I'm more moral, more righteous, more humble than others. No. Theology of the Cross says, no, it is not about what we accomplish for God in our strength. No. That's the religions of the world. Religions are all about making people more powerful, more in control, more successful, having a better life. Christianity is all about 
what God accomplishes through me, through my weakness. So it's not about power, strength, and wisdom. Instead, it is all about weakness, dependence, and humility. And then it is through that we experience the power of the resurrection. The power of Christ's resurrection, this newness of life, this mortification of the flesh, this putting off and putting on and living with the joy of the Spirit is not something that I do through my own work or effort. It is what God does through me as as we confess and repent, as we acknowledge our failings and our weaknesses and we depend upon Christ and He gives us this resurrection power as Christians. Tells us that the way to resurrection power is through brokenness and repentance and not through strength and control. I dare say that there is no power in your Christian life today. There is an appearance of godliness. There is a veneer of godliness. Nobody can tell. It looks like the real thing. But God knows, and maybe you know, this is all just external decoration. There is a form, but there is lacking power. And if that is the case, the reason is you're holding on to your righteousness. Right? You're holding it for dear life. You are, you're holding on to your dignity, your integrity, your authority, your strength, your control. You're holding it for dear life. And that is why there is no power. There is no intimacy with God. There is no work of the Spirit. There is an absence of joy. There is, there is no freedom. Instead, there is anxiety and fear. There is despair, judgmentalism, anger. There's only uh, conviction and death in your life. It, it is, the Christian life is so paradoxical. It is just the opposite of what, you, what we think. Naturally, we think about Christianity. It's the exact opposite. When we consider all these things rubbish, not just neutral. I mean, consider all your righteousness and your rightness. There are things that you know you are right in. Consider that trash. Consider that rotten. Renounce, confess, repent, embrace brokenness, seek a contrite heart. Then Philippians 3.10. You will know then the power of Christ's resurrection. It'll be not just the doctrinal truth that you know in your minds, but it'll be a vibrant living experience in your life. Well, Peter is a man just like us. He, he didn't get it. He didn't get it the first time, not the second time. When he was seeing it happen, he didn't get it. This is uh, one of, this is, you know, Peter passed the first test. When, Pe- when Christ asked Peter, 
who do you say I am? Asked the disciples. Peter passed and he said, you are the Christ, the Christos. You are the Messiah, the son of God, the son of the living God. He passed. And then he, you know, he went from an A to an F minus in a matter of 20 seconds. When Christ unveiled why he came, Peter's response was, verse 22, far be it from you, Lord. It's literally, never, Lord. He is uh, he's commanding Jesus, no, this will not happen to you. All right? This shall never happen to you. I am not going to allow this to happen to you. No way anyone's going to touch you, let alone suffer, let alone die. This will not happen. This reminded me of a, a news story that I read a few weeks ago, a story on um, Associated Press about a motorcyclist. Uh, July 3rd, state troopers told the Post Standard of Syracuse that a Mr. Contos, a 55-year-old resident of Paris, New York, was riding his 1983 Harley-Davidson with a group of bikers, and they were protesting helmet laws. And they are protesting by not wearing helmet laws. Well, Mr. Contos hit his brakes. The motorcycle fishtailed. The bike spun out of control. He toppled over the handlebars. He was pronounced dead at the hospital. Trooper said if he was wearing a helmet, he would have survived. He was protesting what would have saved his life. That's what Peter's doing. If I was there with Peter, I would tell Peter to shut up. What, what are you, he's going to die for your sins. He's going to die for my sins. Peter, you want to go to hell? You are volunteering for hell. And not only that, you're volunteering me for hell. You're volunteering everyone to hell and trying to keep Jesus from the cross. Peter, Close your mouth, right? You are fighting against God. You are protesting. You are trying to stop what will save you and save us. Peter is brash, presumptuous, and prideful. He will not accept the Messiah's suffering and death. And Jesus tells us why Peter rejected God's will. Verse 23 Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's perspective was focused not on God, but on himself. Peter was prompted to say this, not because he loved Jesus, but because he loved himself. He, it's because he didn't want Jesus to suffer. It's because he didn't want to suffer because he wanted a God, Jesus, that would live up here, would be a celebrity, would be powerful, would be glamorous, would be comfortable, because that's what Peter wanted for himself. Jesus says, uh, get behind me, Satan. That mindset is not of God. It's of the accuser, Satan himself. You are against God. God is against you with that mindset. It's not a minor error in your theology. You are believing in and a proponent of satanic error. 
This brings us to verses 24 through 28. And this brings us to us. You and I are followers of this king. So we need to put away our minds, uh, the pictures of kings that were depicted for us through movies, like Disney movies. We need to get rid of our minds, kingdoms of power and glory on the earth, depicted by movies and, and books. We need to reframe our mind according to the king described to us here, a suffering king, a crucified king, and a kingdom where it's about brokenness and faith and humility and not about glory and power. We live between the time of his humiliation and his triumph. How are we to live in this intervening time? Now, our time to rule, our time for victory and glory and power is after his return, Jesus tells us. In the intervening time, we are to follow after the example of Christ in his first return, first arrival. He is the model for us, and he has delineated for us what his suffering and death mean for us. At least four things. It means at least four things. What the crucified Messiah means for us as disciples of Christ, of Jesus Christ. First of all, it means that our discipleship is to be in response to his suffering, to his sacrifice, excuse me, our discipleship is to be in response to his sacrifice. Look at verse 24a. It says, then Jesus told his disciples. That word then tells us it's a sequential uh, historical context here. Right? This verses 24 through 28 is in sequence to the previous statement about himself. They are connected together. Jesus will suffer and he will die and he will be resurrected. And then he says, this is how you are to follow me. This order is important. This order tells us that the motivation behind our discipleship is to be what he has already done for us on the cross. That everything we do is in view of what he has done for us already, once and for all, on the cross of Christ. That is our motivation. That is what compels us. That is what inspires us. That is what warms our hearts. That is what fuels us. We are not to approach discipleship as like some macho thing or as some glorious adventure or some personal ambitious endeavor. We're not to approach it out of, out of duty or out of guilt. If we do, then we demean the cross of Christ. We devalue Jesus. Right? We dishonor him. Do you see that? Right? I mean, the old illustration is, oh, I have to go see my wife today. Right? Man, I have to talk to my parents today. Right? Oh man, I have to go to church. Right? That mentality undermines, devalues each of those 
three objects, like guys with Jesus. Our attitude is everything here. And a right attitude is only possible when we see that we are responding to the measurable love that he gave to us and that he suffered in the flesh, 1 Peter 4. It wasn't like Superman suffering as Clark Kent, right? Superman, he's not real, but in that world, he's real. And yet in that world, when he stubbed his toe, he had to pretend it hurt. Right? When, when he got hit with a football playing, you know, uh, um, flag football, he had to pretend that it hurt him because they will figure out, well, that's not Clark Kent, that's really Superman. Right? He had to play act as if he was frail, as, he was a re- as if he was a regular human being. Well, not Jesus. He wasn't feigning humanity. He was fully God, but fully man. His sufferings were, were real, just like you and I. When he was crying in Gethsemane, those were real tears. When he was bleeding in Golgotha, that was real blood. When he screamed in anguish, it was because he was really in pain. And he did it all for love. Love for God and love for us. He died and, and experienced the horror of of hell on Calvary, drinking the cup of God's wrath because of his love for God and love for us. And so we approach this discipleship, our Christian lives, with that as the focus, with that as the center. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Because of the mercies of God, in view of 11 chapters of God's glorious grace displayed through his son Jesus, I appeal to you. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ because of what he has done for us. Because we have been reconciled to God by God. John Calvin, John Calvin writes, our filthiness deserves that God should punish us and that all the angels should spit on us. But Christ, in order to present us pure and unspotted in presence of the Father, resolved to be spat upon and to be dishonored by every kind of reproaches. Everything that happened to him is what we deserve. But he took it in our place. And so, therefore, because of this alone, we, we want to find out what is your will for us, Lord? Because of your love for me, because of what you endured and what the gift you have given to me, what is your will for me? 
And he tells us, secondly, that our discipleship begins with renouncing self. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, this is not a denial of some optional good. It's it's not denying yourself of of non-moral, non-sinful things in the world. It is not singles. It's not celibacy, right? It's not abstaining from uh, caffeine or or tobacco or alcohol or or TV or movies of non-sinful pleasures of the world. It is not avoidance of these things. It doesn't mean like not be who you are. Not, and sometimes you want to tell that to your roommate. Will you deny yourself? Stop being who you are. I know a lot of wives, their husbands, will you just stop being you, right? I know parents said to our, to our children, just, just stop it. But that's not here in Matthew 16. We, it's, it's just wrong application. It's uh, proof texting. It is not denying who we are, our personality, our character, our experiences, The self to which Jesus refers to is the old self. The self that is apart from regenerating grace. The sinful self. That old self that ruled and reigned before Christ came. We are to aparneomai. And it's like disassociate is to deny knowledge, deny any kind of relationship, any kind of knowledge. It's the same word that Peter used of Jesus. I my Jesus three times. I, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know this man. I have no relationship, no association with Jesus. That is the word that, Matt, that Peter used, and that is the word Jesus used of, to describe our relationship with our former self. In essence, we are to utterly disown our old self, to refuse to acknowledge the self of the old man. Paul said this in Romans 7, Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now, like, if you can like, really say that. Like, I have no righteousness apart from Christ. Can you say Romans 7.24, what a wretched man I am? Can you say I hate myself? That is, the old man of the flesh. I'm a wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of self? Denying self, that is the first way. Denying your old self, denying the the petitions, the demands of the old self. Our old self makes countless demands in our lives, directs us, speaks to us, tells us what decisions to make, and we deny, who are you? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? Who are you to tell me what I should do, what I should think, what I should do with my time and my money? You are dead to me. You are nobody to me. I deny any relationship, any authority that you have over me because I am bought by the blood of Christ. It is 
a denial where we deny the, the cravings that the old self has of this world. Denying the desire to love this world and be conformed to this world. I was telling the brothers on the way here what I did with my sabbatical and I, one thing I did was uh, I started reading Lord of the Rings, right? starting with The Hobbit. I'm about halfway done with Two Towers and I'm gonna start Return of the King probably like next year, <laughs> I don't know, probably hopefully soon. I did that because I, I heard a lecture by an English professor and he was saying, um, a lot of pastors, because they, all they read are scholarly books that are like self-contained in each chapters, they lose the discipline to read a novel where they carry a characters and themes and ideas for the breadth of the book. And when I heard that, I, I realized that's so true for me. I really struggled to read like the Old Testament narratives because my mind is trained to read like books where it's chapter on faith and chapter on repentance and chapter on end times. And I struggled with the Old Testament because of, for that very reason, so I started reading Lord of the Rings. And then one section of the Lord of the Rings, one of the, one of the many stories, uh, Frodo and his friends, <laughs> right? <laughs> and Samwise Gamgee and Pippin and Mary, they, they enter into this forest outside the Shire and they want to go east and yet the forest is kind of alive. It's moving, it's magical. And it's constantly shifting and changing and forcing them to alter their, their, their way. So they want to go a certain direction but they keep pressing them to go a different way. Well, that's an illustration of this world. The world is constantly influencing us, pressuring us, encouraging us or punishing us to conform to its ways in thousand and one ways. Jesus says, I deny that. Deny your sinful impulse to conform to the desires of this world for you. They want you to look a certain way, to have a certain figure, to have a certain intelligence, have a certain income, have certain relationships, have certain values, have certain desires, and fit into the categories of their success and their failure. And you, we ought to say, no, that is not success in the kingdom of God. We are to swim against the flow. We are to stand alone. We are Protestants. We are to protest against this world. Refuse to conform to it. And if we have to go to the thickets, we will. Because of Christ. Well, next, our discipleship. The third thing it means is that is willingness to obey God at all costs. Verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Now, to the people of Jesus' day, the cross was a very concrete and vivid reality. It was an instrument of execution, of suffering and death for Rome's worst enemies. It was a symbol of torture and death. Hundreds and thousands of men were crucified around this time. Disciples knew what he was talking about. They had seen it firsthand. For them, their view of the cross is different for us. For us, we go to a Christian's house, they have a cross on their wall. You go to a church, it has a cross in the steeple. Some people wear crosses 
crosses to comfort them. Some people wear crosses as jewelry as a fashion statement. Some people tattoo crosses. We have crosses to honor the dead. No, for them, they didn't have this flowery view of the cross. For them, the cross was a dreaded idea, a dreadful idea. There was nothing comforting about the cross for them. They immediately pictured a poor condemned soul walking along the road, carrying the instrument of his execution. A man who took up the cross began his own death march. For a disciple of Christ to take up his cross, it meant be willing to start on that death march. It means to be willing in a service to suffer any indignity, any pain, even the death of a, of, a, of a condemned criminal for the sake of Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. It starts with us carrying our crosses. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Oh, look, think of, think of this. Jesus was the Messiah, the, the Son of God. He suffered and died. And next week, most likely, we'll be in Galatians 4 about our adoption as sons. We are sons of God if you're a Christian. He calls us son. We've been adopted into his family so what's in store for us? And in our carnal mind, I'm the son of the God of the universe, right? I, I, I won the lottery, right? I'm, I'm the most blessed man because I'm the king's son. God's gonna give me everything I want. All my sinful carnal prayers, he's gonna answer and grant to me. And we lose our way. And we forget Jesus was the son of God. He suffered, carried the cross, and he died for our sins, and he calls us to do the same, following after his example. Being the son of God, being a son of God, means our, our glory, our, our, our feast, our banquet is in the next life, is in heaven, not here. On this life, just like Jesus, we are called to suffer like Jesus, to carry our crosses. Now, carrying the cross, it means so many things. I cannot, if you want me to, I'll try, but I cannot go through it with our time, time remaining. The carrying, carrying the cross, our cross, it means at least three, these three things. Let me put it this way. John, I was reminded of John Piper's quote by uh, Julia Chan, and very helpful for that. First, the first thing it means is if we love like Jesus. We don't carry the cross to pay for our sins. We don't carry the cross to pay for anyone else's sins. He already paid for our sins to the cross. So our suffering is different. Christ died for us so that we would not have to die for sin. Not so that we would not have to die for others. 
Christ bore the punishment of our sins so that our death and suffering is never a punishment from God. So if you're going through trials, God is not punishing you. The call to suffer with Christ is not a call to bear our sins the way he bore them, but to love the way he loved. Right? So if loving someone costs us our lives, then we carry our cross. The death of Christ for the sin of my selfishness is not meant to help me escape the suffering of love, but to enable it because he took my guilt and my punishment and reconciled me to God as my father. I do not need to cling any longer to the comforts of earth in order to be content. I am free to let things go for the sake of making the supremacy of God's worth known. So we carry our cross not the same purpose, but for the same reason, for the same motivation, love for others. It means we love others, even to the point of death. Secondly, it means identifying ourselves with Jesus. Right. I heard of an interview with Connie Chung, and she said that when she was young, she didn't want her mom walking too close to her at to school because she didn't want anybody to know that she was Chinese. Right. So she thought, my mom didn't walk so close to me, nobody would know I'm Chinese, right? It's supposed to be kind of funny. <laughs> it was just for me, right? Well, that's what our approach to Jesus. Just keep him close enough, but with certain people, we keep him far away, there we show our colors. Now, here in the cross means we identify, we stand with Jesus. And, and it's... It has to be publicly. There must be a public stand with Jesus. Right. I remember being on a flight to Asia somewhere, sat next to a lady, a Chinese lady. I was evangelizing to her, and she said, oh, she's a Christian. She's a medical doctor in, in mainland China. She's a Christian years ago. She said, nobody knows. My husband doesn't know. I, I can't tell anyone I'm a Christian because of persecution. And I humbly, humbly exhorted her you might think that's okay. But Jesus said in Luke 9.26, whoever is ashamed of me, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. So I remember as a young Christian, it was a big deal for me to pray for my meals and my friends. It was like me being like the most courageous Christian I could ever be. It was me being like Martin Luther, me like preaching to the world. Just my friends, I'm gonna pray. Right? That was the scariest thing for me. I was like 20 years old, right? Uh, it means identifying yourself with Christ. Thirdly, it means being, having the willingness to do whatever is God's will for the advancement of the gospel. So your agenda is, you wanna do God's will, whatever it is, for the advancement of the gospel. It is doing what is required of us in the scriptures, embracing whatever shame, disgrace, suffering and pain it may, it may bear for the sake of the gospel of God going forth. 
John Piper said this, the great, the great commission will not be finished without the suffering of God's people. This will happen not just because from time to time persecution arises, but listen to this, because it is the design of God that the gospel will be spread by the means of suffering. The missiological strategy of God is that the gospel will be spread through the suffering of his people. If we say that we will do all we can to minimize and escape from our suffering, then we will not participate in the spreading of the gospel in this world. Paul said to the church of Philippi, it has been granted to you to not just believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his name. And that is for every Christian. God's plan is for your suffering so that the gospel might go forth. And when you are running away, escaping, hiding from suffering, then your heart comes out. You don't want to carry your cross. You don't want the gospel to go forward. There is no other way for the gospel to go forth. It is the design of God. And the final one is follow me. Right. Follow me. And this is um, follow Christ wherever he leads. Right? And so... I want, I want you to be careful here. Just share a little bit about how I make difficult decisions. When I come upon a difficult decision, one consideration, one of many considerations, but one consideration that I think through is which de decision will entail me suffering more for the gospel's sake? Which decision means I will suffer more for the sake of the gospel? So far, it's always been the right decision, right? The correct decision was the one that would entail my suffering, and that's what I was I'm wrestling with. When Christ says, follow me, why is that so hard? Because where is he going? Hebrews 13, he is going outside the gate. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So where is Jesus going? Where does he want to take us? He wants to take us outside the camp. Meaning where we are rejected by this world where we bear the reproach of this world. He was the object of contempt and scorn. He was held to derision. He was reviled. He was taunted. Even as he was dying, they showed him no mercy, no, no kindness whatsoever. And that is where he is calling us to follow him. He's not calling us to follow him to a kingdom of comfort and ease and pleasure. In view of his great work on the cross for us, he calls us 
to a lifetime of suffering. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. For the Christian, it is not suffering for a few hours or a few weeks or a few months or years. It is a call to a lifetime of suffering because of what he has done for us. You know, much time has passed. I, I, let me close with this. How do we know we are, how do we know whether we are living a life of discipleship out of faith in the gospel or out of legalism? How do we know whether we are doing it um, by faith or out of obligation or fear? I think there's uh, one clear litmus test that shows what is the motivation of our obedience. Ask yourself, what is prompting you, theology of glory or theology of the cross? Ask yourself, is there an absence of joy in your Christian life? Is there a presence, abounding joy, unspeakable joy? That presence and absence of joy determines everything, reveals everything. Hebrews 12, 2 says, that it was with joy. Christ disregarded the shame of the cross, and with joy he went to the cross. So he, Jesus denied himself, not with grumbling, he wasn't complaining as he was carrying the cross. As he submitted himself to the Father, he wasn't angry, full of resentment and bitterness. <laughs> Hebrews 12 says that he was filled with joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame of the cross, disregarding the shame of the cross. Ask yourself, is there a joy in your Christian life? Is there a joy? It's suffering, it's painful, it hurts. But as you deny yourself, as you carry the cross, as you follow Christ outside the gate, has there joy overflowing from your heart? That means it is prompted by what God has done for you. It is prompted by faith. If you are lacking joy, you don't pray for joy. Joy is a fruit. Pray for faith. Pray that God would grant you a clearer view of the cross, a more vivid, experiential understanding of Jesus' suffering, of his death, his resurrection. Ask God to give you it's greater faith to believe his love for you. And then watch out. You pray that prayer and just watch out. God will grant you joy. Let's pray. Lord,
Nor will you. Lord, we are so caught up with our own lives. We are so caught up in our own version of Christianity that this, these truths are just shocking to us. They are just so um, otherworldly. They are so, uh, so beyond us, beyond our, our capacity of our minds, of our faith, of our, of our daily lives. So Lord, but we desire these truths to be a reality for us. We desire to be living lives like the New Testament church. We desire, oh God, and we pray for faith so that we would, in our, all our own ways, in our own individual lives, you're not calling us to be to a monastery. You're not calling us to missions per se. You're calling us right now in our lives to deny ourselves to take up our crosses and follow you. Lord, we pray for faith. We pray for this privilege to be realized in our lives. And we pray that uh, as each of us do this, that our church will be a church of people suffering, going through unspeakable difficulties because of of our sins because of this world. And at the same time, maybe a church full of just joy, abounding joy because of the cross. We pray all these things in the dear name of Jesus Christ. Amen.